Hi, this is Glenn Kaiser, and welcome to another episode of our Dolby Institute and Soundworks Collection special Oscars Contenders podcast. Um, I'm thrilled we're here on the Sony Pictures lot in the Anthony Quinn mixing stage in Culver City, California. It's my it's my honor to be sitting uh, with the team who worked on Quentin Tarantino's film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm here with Mike Minkler, Christian Minkler, and Wiley Stateman. First of all, congratulations, gentlemen, on your your Oscar nominations. Um, Thank you very much. Uh, the the movie's really amazing. Mike, you're you're an old pro at this. You've received numerous nominations and you've won um, three Oscars, yes. if I'm correct, for Dream Girls in Chicago and Black Hawk Down. Uh, Chris, this is your first nomination. That's right. But you've had a busy year. You also uh, mixed one of my favorite movies of the year, Bombshell, which yeah. I thought was just a fantastic. Yeah, really, you. really fun movie. Very fun movie. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and Wiley, uh, you're an old pro at this. Is what this is your ninth nomination, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. Pro, I prefer to be called. <laughs> <laughs> everything is everything old is new again. Yeah, absolutely. And well, this is actually my fiftieth year in the business. That's amazing. And it's forty years from this nomination to my first. Wow. What was the first movie you worked on? Real movie? Yeah. Ooh, it was like one of those frontier Fremont adventure movies. You got to start somewhere. You got to start somewhere. Yeah. yeah, but you guys have worked with uh, with Quentin for quite a while now. This is this has been a long a long collaboration. Yeah, I go back to Jackie Brown twenty three years ago. Amazing, amazing. And you, Wiley, you got involved. Uh, you joined Quentin's band when on Kill Bill on Kill Bill on Volume One. Right. Uh, I've always loved his work, and Mike and I go back to. Uh, the Long Riders. We our first yeah. project together was a Western. Nineteen seventy nine. Yeah. Wow. With Walter Hill. So um, the, this team is um, is well versed in in collaborating. So it's it's a uh, but working with Quentin is always interesting. Well, I'd I'd love to start there. Uh, Quentin obviously is is uh, just an extraordinary storyteller and an extraordinary craftsman, but he seems to also just have a great understanding of of. Uh, the power of sound to help him tell his story. Um, the work that you guys do on Quentin's movies is always superb. Um, can you talk a little bit about the process? When do you get involved? Um, Wiley, we can start with you. So do you, does, does he send you the script before he goes out and shoots? Or how, how does the conversation happen? This particular film was, again, coming off of uh, Hateful Eight. Right. Hateful Eight, there was a problem with the script that it had gotten out. So... Uh, security was very strict on this film, and we were all individually called down to read the script at Quentin's office. In a locked room. In a locked room. <laughs> and there was a special section of the script that only a few of us got to read, and it was a high security endeavor, to say the least. Yeah. Um, but for me, the the process is is one of of, of taking notes. It's very interesting to me because um, we, we collaborate, uh, Mike and I and, and Mark, and each of us had a first reaction to the script. Right. And Mark said he cried. Mike said, I love this period. I can relate to I, it. I, I was, was shaking there. for 20 you minutes. Know. Really? After you put the script down? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, it was like I had to get there at the crack of dawn because it was going to take me all day to right. read the script and do my notes. Right. So um, it's it, the process, as, as you would say, begins by one, understanding his intentions, right. and, and and all of them are written. He's a, an extraordinary writer, uh, and his scripts are extraordinarily detailed. 
What, what, do you remember the page count? I think it was 160 some odd pages. Do you? Um, I think more than that. Yeah. So it's it, a dense it's piece of piece of work, and it's and and it describes in great detail uh, his intentions, and a lot of that uh, is uh, scene location. But mm -hmm. there's things that you can glean from that and tease out in terms of sound. So and does he talk about specific sound things in the script, or there there's just enough visual detail that you're thinking it's triggering things for you as you're reading? Both. It's a very graphic uh, work. And it, and it often references music, which is, mm. I think, the most interesting part of his process. Um, so he was very, very keen on um, capturing 1969 by uh, speaking through the voice of radio of that time and uh, Humble Harv and, right. and the real Don Steele and, and DJs that sort of controlled the airwaves, uh, controlled the popular uh, culture. And that's a very important part of what this film is about. It's a clash between yeah. cultures. It's not, he didn't put the music onto the movie. Right. It's in the script. He was thinking about right. it from the very beginning. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to ask you um, about that because the, you know, the, the, the character of the radio is really important in the film and, and the KHJ uh, program is kind of like a running, a running element that goes throughout. So was that, it was that were those real KHJ recordings? Did you guys re recreate some of that stuff, or was it all? Every one of them is real. Quentin had to buy fifty hours of that library mm -hmm. in order to use at at his will. So, uh, you know, Mark Ulano had to go through it all. Wiley had to go through it all, and so he had to like take all the pieces and put them together. And then after that, uh, after it was put together and used by Fred uh, Raskin in the cutting room, we were able to go out and get different recordings of the same thing but mm -hmm. if they weren't better or if we couldn't make them better we had to go back to the originals so it, it all came from that there was only one time where oh and by the way there's 107 of those recordings in the movie one of them was revoiced by the original guy really who's still alive you brought him back and brought him back and let him do this one little piece that's amazing I think it's it's five o'clock in Los Angeles, right? And then we'd start a transition into a yeah, that's into it. The traveling scene, yeah, yeah. That's the that's how he comes out of the Spawn Ranch scene, exactly. right? It's five exactly. o'clock in Los Angeles, and it's a yeah. beautiful way to end that scene, you know, because that that scene is full of intensity. I now don't I, okay. I, I there's a lot of I, that's a scene <laughs> that I want to unpack a little yeah. bit and and dig into, but I'm always I, I love talking about tone and and the way that directors decide to kind of set the tone. You know, obviously, um, you know. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, if you're tuning in and you haven't seen the film, I, <laughs> we're going to spoil it for you. But it's it's oh, about yeah. these two characters, uh, Rick Dalton and 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 Cliff, his, his stunt double, uh, 1960s, and their stories intersect with the Manson murders. Um, and so that's a, that's a pretty heavy, you know, heavy, heavy subject. Say, yeah. Yeah. Very much so. But... There's also a lot of lightheartedness in the film. It's there's a lot of fun, and you and and Quentin sets that tone from the very beginning. I think one of the very first things that you get into is there's a lot of TV shows within the movie. Mm -hmm. So we start with an episode of, of Bounty Law, mm -hmm. and I, you forget you, you know you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the first within the first two or three shots we hear a Wilhelm scream as a guy goes off of the balcony in the the show within a show, and so that's kind of a hat tip for those of us in the industry. Like this is we're gonna have some fun with this. Right, and that's that's kind of an important, you know, element of the tone of the of the piece. So you you guys had a lot of fun recreating those old TV shows, obviously. But I don't think the Wilhelm was the Wilhelm. Yeah, wasn't it? It was Kurt Russell. A, uh, we we have a version that Kurt Russell did for us. Uh, really, in Death Proof. 
which uh, we've we've come to favor. Um, but you're right. It, it's a you know the it's a nod to the fact that we're making a movie within the movie, and right. so we have the the uh, bounty law, and then we have the Lancer film set, and uh, these are really uh, anchor tenants in Quentin's story. So, um, you know, the, to consider this a film about murder, it's, it's really not. It's a film about Hollywood. It's a, it's a love affair with Los Angeles in 1969 right. and the transitioning of one generation of filmmaker into another generation of filmmaker. Right. So we, I think of this as a buddy movie, you know, along the lines of Easy Rider or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, if you were to bracket those two, because... While Butch Cassidy is a Western and Easy Rider is a road movie, um, they do represent sort of classic Hollywood, you know, put the camera on tripod versus put the camera wherever it needs to be to tell the story. And right. If you see Easy Rider today, you're just, wow. And I think we talked about this quite a bit, you know. We're trying to make a movie that could live in an archive from 1969. Right. So, um, but... Uh, and we use... Throughout the mix, we use what I call the different levels of vintage. Hmm. And by that, I mean a certain, pr and, and, and Quentin uses the certain levels of vintage as well, with the pictures changing in size and color and density and black and white versus color. And so as the picture changes, we change along with it. So our the audio portion changes in size and scope. And... Uh, that allowed us to just have a whole bunch of fun. So let me ask you more specifically. But so I'm 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 presuming that what you're talking about is for the for the old you know '60s TV shows. You're basically were you mostly mono, and it's it's a very mm -hmm. sort of simple track that's kind of evocative of what the style was at the time. And then the technology was at the time. Sure, things didn't sound good back then, mostly because of technology. It wasn't like anybody wanted it to sound bad. Right, but they did end up sounding bad. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I wonder if we do this new TV show, if we can do the same thing. <laughs> yeah, so for uh, we were just chatting before we rolled. The, the news broke today that Quinn's going to do, uh, I guess, six episodes of yeah. of Bounty Law for uh, yeah. as, as a TV show, which I think is just fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, It'd be, it would be fun if you could, you know, do them in mono four by three black and white, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, uh, you know, that's why I, I mentioned, you know, our first go round, our first rodeo was actually, uh, you know, in the Western genre. And it's a very um, interesting, playful genre for sound. Yeah. You know, it, it can be loud, but it's very organic. It's very uh, uh, analog. You know, the textures are a lot of leather and a lot of jangling things. And the music is lovely. And it's generally more solo instruments and things like that. So. It's uh, it's great that Quentin's deciding to to do a western, and I know we're both really excited. All of us, yeah. you know, uh, Mark Ilano included, would be really excited to to get back in the saddle. So sure, to speak. yeah, <laughs> no yeah. pun intended. Well, you brought up music, and I, I wanted to ask you about that. So, <clears throat> music is obviously it's a huge element uh, in the film, and a, as you mentioned, Quentin thinks about that in the in the script. But it's interesting to me; it's not it, it, you know Quentin doesn't use a composer, so it's all it's all source music. Well, this was the first of that real uh, that type. Uh, you know, before we've had composers, from, right? Uh, no, only only on Hateful Eight. Uh, well, with Ennio Morricone. Yes, right. that was, and he, yeah, he only did like didn't 20... Rizzo get a composing credit <clears throat> on Kill Bill? Rizzo did a one minute, one second cue. 
That's in still, Kill Bill, and that's you it. know what? It's as I meaningful it as it was. <laughs> he got a BAFTA nomination yeah, for it. Too. I think that's great. <laughs> it was a very important one minute and one second. But that's right? the yeah. only time in all of his films that he's used a score. Those, those two instances, everything else has been either from his own personal library. Most yeah. everything has come from his personal library. This one had to come from the KHJ library, the archives. Right, right. What is it? It's, I, I just want to dig into that a little bit because uh, that seems unusual to me not to use, you know, most directors use score. Why is it that Quentin kind of come uh, shies away from that and, and relies solely on music from the era or... You know, draw it I, I don't know exactly, but I would say everything in his movies derived from something that he's seen before. Right. People say he cheats and he copies other movies. Well, everyone copies everything because you see a scene, you, you remember it, and you think, oh, you know, someday I'd like to sh shoot a scene that's kind of like that, you know, but I'll do it my way. So everything is originally his way. I mean, it's an original. It's an original way of doing it right. based on something else. And I think that also goes into the music. He likes music from other movies, other sure. television shows, uh, or, or pop culture. Yeah. Something he, that has affected him. Yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't really, he's not interested in making some original score. I, I think that that's the theory behind it. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. It's my theory. Interesting. I, well, I see it a little different if you please, like another yeah. point of view. Uh, the cutting process for Quentin is a really important sort of remaking of the film. And when you're using songs and when you're using pieces of known score, you have them early. Mm -hmm. And he can develop these cutting patterns with uh, Fred Raskin, who's really the editor-in-chief of the of post-production. Yeah. But Fred can work with Quentin. They can develop a scene that might be just more linear or more jump cut, or we can play with time transitions early on in the cutting room without having to wait for a composer to contribute music mm. in the last month of the schedule. Sure. So if you think of it strategically um, as part of the creating the creation process in the cutting room, what a fantastic thing to work with music that you know you can license, put in the film, uh, yeah. and then all the cutting patterns <clears throat> are, are stabilized to that piece of music. And if you need to, you can cut to the music. You can, yeah, you got it. Absolutely. We, it's a you tremendous brought, tool. Yeah, you brought up the cutting process, and I wanted to ask you about that, because um, I understand that you you embed a sound editor in in Quentin's kind of editing. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? And, and uh, We don't always do it that way, but on this particular film, it uh, it was clear that that we were going to take this approach and, and uh, uh, early prototype stuff with the music, of course. And it's for that reason. I mean, uh, Jim Schultz was on early. He works out of a home studio. He's our music editor, Jim. And he did an amazing job taking Quentin's vinyl and taking whatever sources, as Mike said, from KHJ archives and various other places and getting them at a, at a quality that, was, uh, that could go the distance. Um, but this idea of embedding in the cutting room, that's not a new idea. Sure. The, the novel part of it, uh, in terms of my thought process, is that the uh, Avid isn't a proxy for the final soundtrack. It's really the uh, the beginnings of the final soundtrack, and it's and it lives in a desk that can then be transitioned to Mike. I mean, Mike handles the mastering and the setting of everything, you know, so that it's the movie that you see. Uh, but a lot of the design can be done early, and it and for the benefit of the filmmaker. So. Uh, Quentin and Fred uh, working towards um, you're working with just proxy temp sounds mm -hmm. would be they wouldn't they don't want that so right. on this particular project 
in terms of sound, we built some pretty uh, some pretty elaborate um, track for them, and that was um, that was the beginning of, of Mike's mix. Yeah, there was it was a triangle thing. It was going from the cutting room, get, make me some stuff. While they would his team would make some stuff, can mix it up a little bit, put it in, and give it back to to Fred, and then by the time we came along, then would come to us and would come to Chris the the sound effects premixes and uh, they were they were just templates. They were it's like this is what we're thinking about. This you know and, right. and so we would just take it on from there. So there was this triangle going on all, all throughout. Were there temp mixes on the film? No. Well, constantly, <laughs> but, well, but not in the traditional a, sense. <clears throat> so not in the traditional because Quentin doesn't necessarily go out and do test screenings or anything like that. Uh, well, he screens the film. We do friends and family. Friends and family uh, screenings. And we right. do. Uh, he's a he. Um, his process is to review the material and to and to um, and to constantly refine the material. You know, the script was long enough to produce, I think, uh, maybe arguably almost four hours worth of cut content. And at some point, we will. Um, there will be the four-hour cut of the film. <laughs> well, yeah, there will be a four-hour cut of the film, and we've already finished a four-hour cut of the Interesting. film. Interesting. Well, well, Wiley gets pieces of the film to work on yeah, and works right. with the cutting room. Uh, he's never seen the whole thing until same, approximately the same time I see it, which is the rough cut, right. the four-hour version. Right. That's the first time everybody, those involved, get to see it. And that's also, by the time, it's one of my favorite times because I've been, I read the script six months ago or eight months ago or something, right. and I have an idea what he's going to do. But then when I actually see what he actually did with it, it's so enjoyable. It's just to sit back and watch it. But so that's the time when we see the four-hour version, and we'll mix that four-hour version, and then that's our temp up. It was as we see how things are working. Or in the case of Kill Bill, it just becomes two movies. Which, uh, <laughs> which was a wonderful idea. That was the right solution to that film yeah. at that time. But that was 280 pages. Wow. Yeah. And when I read it, yeah. I, was, I, I said, my first thing, my reaction was to Sally Menke, the picture editor. I go, this is two movies. Right. What do you, yeah. Don't even think about one. Yeah. yeah. Chris, you haven't said anything. You well, know, I, I, I was sitting between you two geniuses. <laughs> no, but I have a question for you. You yeah. brought up the Spawn Ranch uh, sequence, and I want to I want to dig into that a little bit. Um, and it's to, to me the first thing I noticed when I watched the movie again is you get to Spawn Ranch and there's no music anymore. And and so you, you're stepping forward, kind of with the with the sound effects. And can you talk a little bit about the sound effects on that particular sequence and and what's happening? Certainly. Well, when we first got there, Wiley, our first. Uh, um, intent was like like they had said we had the uh track from the cutting room so we knew we had an idea of where we were going to go with it and while he, his first thing was let's start being focused on the screen let's start seeing let's let's build it from what we see and then go out from there instead of going just in a straight seven one and flying everything around the right room. so it kind of we methodically went through the process so we built um as the tracks came in and they came in almost in pieces Everything didn't just come at once. There's ideas. The yeah, they just I, keep coming. They yeah. they we we had certain winds and 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 design, a lot of practical effects, and and it just sort of building it until I got too far sometimes, and it was too much around, and there was too many sounds, and we pare it down and pare it down, and maybe add some more. So the entire the, the from when we first started mixing that scene, probably until the very end of the mix, that was probably one scene that we kept. Revisiting one way or another and and sort of building the track. Yeah. 
Yeah, and we did build it too big at one point, and we had to come back down. But that was that was probably the most collaborative piece of film in the movie, the sequence. What do you and mean it's by collaborative? Six, it's about 16 minutes. Mm-hmm. Collaborative was by, Wiley's got his ideas and he's throwing them out, and Chris has his ideas and I've got mine, and Fred Raskin has his, and then uh, anybody else is, is welcome, anybody in the room who's, who's with us is also welcome to throw out ideas. So it's just throwing them in and pulling them out, throwing them in and pulling them out. And then Quentin comes around and we say, well, how, our question is, how do you think how we're doing? You right. know? And he'll give us his impression. And then we start kind of pulling and t- twisting again. And so things, we kept revisiting the scene, as Chris said, you know, time and time and time again. And, and we spent more time on that scene than any other because of that because it was, the, it was the creative process of putting in and taking out and changing and swapping. Well, look, Red, I'm coming in there. With my own two eyes, I'm gonna get a good look at George. And this ain't stopping me. Okay. Set yourself. You never know. The next boy you meet may be the one. The next time he looks at you, maybe the time he really sees you. Better be ready for next time. Clean the cover of medication. Find our even helps keep your skin because it has Noctema medication right in it. So clean, it's actually good for your skin. So fresh and natural looking, you're always ready for next time. And you never know. The next boy you meet may be the one. The next time he looks at you may be the time he really sees you. Sparkling drop of red soot. the end of the hallway for me it's one of the key sequences if not if not the key sequence in, in the film it's really fascinating and uh, just the the craftsmanship is so is so interesting to me um but i want to there's a question that i want to get at which is how you guys build tension and use sound to keep the audience on an edge and before you jump in the, the one thing I, I, I noticed when I, I looked at the film again, and I was listening to it on headphones, so I could really I was I was really concentrating. There's a lot going on that I that just slipped past me the first time I watched the movie, and I'm, I'm thinking about like the first time I think you're following um, Rick and Cliff as they drive home, and you you move up, and then you see the Cielo Drive sign, mm-hmm. yeah. and you put you know you put a there's a 
there's a sort of, I don't want to call it a stinger, but there's a sound effect that happens when you see that Cielo yeah, drive sign. It's a sign. dark note. It's a dark note. And immediately, you know, the first time I saw the movie, it worked on me on an unconscious level. The second time when I was paying attention to it, I saw like, oh, these guys are, they're, they're, they're cluing me in that something important is going to happen here. And I heard some of those same elements come back when you get to the Spawn Ranch. And I know I promised I wasn't going to ask you how you do specific sounds, but I am- but I will unpack it for you if you'd like, because I, I think your your audience can handle this. Absolutely. And, I, and I'm, I'm curious about, you know, that specifically how you, how you made things tense in the first few minutes of that Spawn Ranch okay. scene. There were four sound designers that worked on that scene. Uh, Harry Cohen, who's mm -hmm. been with me for a long time, a long time, and I, I adore Harry. We're uh, we're soulmates in terms of our creative work together, and we can complete each other's sentences. Um, that being said, there's a process to sound, and uh, what Harry does is he's uh, first of all a jazz musician, and second of all, he's uh, has a deep working knowledge of of pro, pro tools and plugins, and and he's really looks at sound as a broadband frequencies of which low frequencies will do this and right. mids and highs will do this. And so he's very strategic, one, in his selection, but two, in his build. And so besides Harry, there was a Sylvain, Sylvain Lissier. And Sylvain, is, um, he works with a, a Kima Pecorina. And this is a device that's like no other. It's a, it's a really a DSP farm mm -hmm. uh, hooked to touch-sensitive uh, uh, keyboard controllers. And the Kima is capable of morphing four sounds together to create a new sound. Hmm. And it was originally conceived of as a device to create musical instruments. Right. So we use it like a musical instrument. And Sylvan is just, he it's his, it's his religion. He practices on it every day. And that's the kind of device it is. It starts with a DOS screen and it says, what do you want to make? And then you do a low pass filter, you do a vocoder, you do whatever you have to build it in software. Yeah. It's a very dense device. This is not, this is not a UI friendly no, device. Not, there are <laughs> lots of these on eBay yeah. because people can't master them. It, it's right. really something that, uh, that, that uh, doesn't, uh, does a beautiful job, but it's just very difficult to master. Um, there was Leo Marcel, who was our embedded uh, editor, who mm -hmm. uh, built all kinds of Foley instruments so that we could get the, the textures of their feet and the grit of the, of the walk and the movement of their cloth. And, and Chris could go to absolute silence, and we still had a thread of something that was production. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, the Spawn Ranch was a noisy place. It's under the flight path to, into Burbank, uh, into I think uh, Van Nuys Airport. I see. And so okay. Mark did an absolute wonderful job with the dialogue, but these long wide shots, as Chris was saying, looking down the Spawn Ranch. And the walking shots. And the walking shots, those were up to us to populate with uh, sound design and Foley. Right. So the third person was Zach Goheen, uh, and he's a really accomplished field recorder. And he went out to Death Valley and we recorded air motors squeaking in the wind and all kinds of just creepy desert distressed right. you know, mechanical devices. And between those four things, we were able to, you know, the camera takes a position behind a truck and then reveals, you know, Brad walking. We were able to create a dialogue and, uh, and a vocabulary for those camera positions. Right. And we had these four very distinctive um, elements of, of traditional sound editorial uh, that were all done by brilliant masters. So uh, anytime Chris wanted to open up the Foley track or open up the background wind or, or a piece of design or a piece of just 
something that Harry had made, you know, under those faders were some pretty cool. There was shit. always something there. <laughs> yeah, play it all together, it, which we tried. I it tried was a mess. It yeah. kind of got a little, but <clears throat> like what I said, the genius each one of them brought to the game, we were able to kind of go there at, at a certain point because some one of their their work is playing throughout the whole thing. Yeah. Obviously, not at the same time, but there's a very good thread of everything that they've done that yeah. they did and i didn't mean to use the word mess i just meant it, it gets it's no. too thick it's, it's too, too much. much it's too much too much of a good thing too, too many notes yeah. right because they right. all had right. their interpretation of yeah. what might be happening at that one time and they weren't all all of them weren't incorrect well sometimes so. mixing is about subtracting <laughs> oh sure and that's uh, that's a very good point i believe that mixing should be an additive process yeah. i think you start with a blank canvas and you say what's the one thing i want to hear Right. And it's much more interesting to do it that way than to make it a deductive process. But to each their own. And, and everybody comes at this work with their own unique perspective. Um, in this particular case, uh, we had this beautiful scene. Quentin felt, felt that the scene would, would be way too dark if it was expressed with score or, or song. Mm -hmm. And so we did it with sound design. And, and, and Mike did it. With, the dialogue is beautiful. The, the scene inside with... Uh, uh, in this, in the with squeaky and from with you know on either side of a screen door, and then the scene in the bedroom with George this, Bond. The screen door is not going to stop me, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. Right. it's just gorgeous. Yeah. And she doesn't blink if you notice. Yeah. It's a creepy. Yeah, Dakota Fanning, scene. I think, is just a gem. Yeah. That she that absolutely she, did that on purpose. That was her idea. She said, I'm not going to blink in this scene. Yeah, yeah. She, that's right. That's when you know people are crazy when yeah. they, when, they yeah. don't, when they don't blink. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, but the it's perform a, all the, all up and down in the movie, every performance. Fantastic. But every department is playing in that scene. I mean, look, the beauty of this movie is Mike is a, a sound designer director. So is Chris. Yeah. So is Mark Ulano. Right. So am I. And it's wonderful to have Quentin bring together, you know, a talented group like this that enjoys working together, um, that enjoys the, the collaborative process, but that can bring to it game, you know? Right. I mean, we had... Uh, beautiful production dialogue tracks. There are no loops in this movie. We have um, Mark. Mark told us that he said there there are, there are no loops in a Quentin in a Quentin film, which never. I presume that just puts the it puts it makes your job a challenge. There's been obviously. a couple of scenes over the years that were a challenge that yes. you wish that you had some it, loops. Yeah, on. but he won't do it to replace a line. He'll add lines, right? Uh, if he needs to, it's usually not from the main characters. It's usually something goofy from off stage. And it's also a challenge for us. I mean, it's oh, an honest way to say, you know, guys, get it right and figure and and put it on the screen. Yeah. And and it's the performance that I directed on the day, and it's I being yeah. Quentin, rather than something that was created on an EDR stage. Yeah. Right. right from the beginning, Quentin just allows everybody to do their job as best as they can, and he wants you to do it as best as you can. And if you have a little problem on production, and you say, Quentin, the lighting on that shifted, or the, there's a noise or something, he'll go, let's do it again. Yeah, because he wants it right. He wants everybody to have their shot at doing it right, and he trusts his people. Absolutely. And Mike Hurtline did a wonderful job with this. Mike Hurtline cleaning, yeoman's job. Mike Hurtline uh, was the dialogue was our editor, dialogue editor. Mm -hmm. and uh, he and Lindsay Alvarez. Um, Lindsay handled the. Uh, we did one day a group, and you know, and, and there's a sort of an integration process that occurs uh, between Mike and I, where things have to be conformed and things, you know, just have to be repositioned. And Mike has needs as he's as he's mixing the film. Um, Lindsay handled that. Mike Hurtline handled the original build and all the isotope, uh, you know, RX sort of treatments and things that um, that the production 
dialogue track benefited from. The cars are really important in this film. There's a lot of driving. It's very much a Los Angeles story, and that means a lot of time driving, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of cars. And, the, and but I, my, my, uh, the question I just had to ask is who, who was the lucky person who got to drive all of Brad Pitt's driving scenes for, for sound effects recording? That must have been a lot of fun. Brad Pitt, for those of you who haven't seen the film, he's he's a kind of a crazy driver in the yeah, film. He drives stunt, real fast. He's a stuntman. He's a stuntman. Yeah, he drives like a stuntman. Stunt That's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, we had one day to record the production cars, the show cars. That's amazing. And we had uh, somebody from the transportation department. And we went out to the set with uh, five field recorders. Um, my team, Leo and, and Zach, and uh, um, uh, uh, field recordists of great talent, uh, um, Paquin. Um, do you know Paquin? No, I don't. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll, We'll go through him later, but <laughs> the idea that uh, that professional people handle the recording of these cars uh, is one thing. The idea that we did it all in one day That's and amazing. we did seven show cars in one day is truly um, uh, a work of coordinated efforts. So uh, we had a driver. We did it just aside from the set where the first unit was shooting, and we got kind of what we needed. I mean, there's mm -hmm. uh, there's a little bit of sweetening going on, yeah. but. Uh, which, which Harry Cohen did. I mean, Harry is wonderful with cars. Yeah. Um, um, because cars are a frequency dependent kind of sound design piece. Um, so. But the the the, well, I, what did you guys call it? The old creeper. The, yes, the creepy crawler. The creepy crawler. But yeah. that that couldn't have sounded that way in production. You guys no. built that in. That post, was Chris right? Minkler. <laughs> you you built the creepy crawler. We built the creepy crawler on the stage. Yeah. 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 yeah several the elements. Elements. Creepy elements. I don't know which ones were actually from the car, but yeah, there were about a half dozen stereo tracks, maybe some mono recordings of the car also that yeah. we used to create that. Right. Yeah. Recording old cars and make, having old cars that don't sound old, because we didn't want them to sound old. They're supposed right. to be brand new. When, yeah, exactly. It's supposed and to be 1969, right? to get those right? recordings yeah. of some yeah. of these, those cars, you know, doors aren't supposed to squeak yeah. that much. And, <laughs> yeah. But... And that was a kind of a thing about the uh, the Cadillac was it was supposed to be a brand new you know expensive Cadillac right with a big engine with a 484 horsepower engine uh, it was really easy to make it sound like a jalopy and we had to keep saying to ourselves don't do that don't do that get back off here we want to make it hot right but we don't want to make it sound like a jalopy because it's a brand new it's a Cadillac. brand new it's a brand new fancy car yeah. But those they you did used to sound pretty massive back then. Yeah, of course, big throaty throaty engines. But cars have to live in a space against dialogue. Cars live in a space against dialogue. Cars live in scale to the music. Right. And um, Quentin is is um, mostly focused on story. Sure. And so that's that's a tremendous relief for sound people. Um, that means we go with best practices. We go with. Uh, production, so there'll be inherently some element of the the vehicle in the production. But Brad is driving the car. Mark shot that, uh, did recorded dialogue in a scene driving down the freeway with two characters reading pages of dialogue with the windows down. Right. So you know, Mike, you know, had his hands full. Mike Hurtline before him. Um, Quentin's films are are. Um, are challenging in, in in so many ways, and but it's you know it's 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 a that's the beauty of having such a skillful team, you know we uh, we rise to that and 
take big problems, make them into small, ever smaller problems, and then present it on the screen as a coherent story that just has this natural flow to it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I love, there were so many moments that I love, uh, especially, you know, when you get to the night when the murders are going to happen and the sun's going down and you guys do that amazing, the neon montage. Love mm -hmm. that. Such, yeah. such great, great flavor of Los Angeles. It's yeah. really a love letter to yeah. LA in a way. Yeah, it was, that was all about the city, daytime going away, nighttime coming on. The whole, it all changes, the shift in the, of the, of the mood. And, you know, everything in the movie is based on reality based on some actual event or something that happened at that particular time in, in, in Los Angeles. So right. There, there's a hundred connections. Quentin can tell you all of them. I can only tell you about 20, but there's so many connections to reality in that script that seem like they're fantasy. Well, that, and that happens because Quentin is such a, he's such a student of Hollywood. He's, he loves all that stuff. So he puts it, it may just be for, for him and a half dozen other people who know all this backstory, but it's really rich, you know? It is. He's a master of structure. Right. I mean, we, we have Brandy the dog being fed in the trailer while we're watching TV. Right. There's a lot of- Mannix, right? He's watching yeah, he's a watching Mannix. Mannix. Yeah. And we have these great commercials and he's at the drive-in and there's like all these really wonderful textural- uh, connections between our, our our Brad Pitt character, um, and 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 the world of Hollywood of that day, but then Brandy becomes a hero in the end. That's right. And, and so, as Mike said, Quentin loves to tease things. We tease the flamethrower, you know, right. uh, in in real one, and it becomes a very significant player at the end of the movie. So, uh, Quentin's a master of structure, right? And he surrounds himself. With other masters, and that was a real flamethrower. Yeah, was it really? Oh, well, yeah. he actually learned how to use the uh, real flame. Well, I love that. Is... I love that joke in the film. Is this? Can you? Can you can make you... this not so hot? No, yeah. just... Rick, it's flamethrower. Yeah, that's <laughs> like real. I mean, because, and that was the real sound. I don't yeah. think that one was well, sweetened. The other ones were sweetened. The other yeah. two events. It's all sweet. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all sweet. Yeah, it's yeah. all heavily sweetened. Okay. <laughs> Talk, you know, we, we'll bring Harry over, Harry Cohen over, and he'll <laughs> show you it. the yeah. build on that. Yeah, it's, uh, it was a little bit sweet. Yeah. Well, it's a hundred track sweetened. You can, you can, I mean, I presumed it was sweetened just because it's so over the top, it's almost comical. You well, know? Yeah. You well, know. it's sweetened because you're managing a frequency. You know, there's a low end component to it. There's a high end component to it. There's a, a very plosive and kind of sputtering thing. There's the after effect when he turns it off and it flames out. Yeah. You know, these are, you know, the beauty of, of this kind of filmmaking is the detail. Right. And then, and Quentin is, is not just a master of, of plot points. But he's a, a true connoisseur of detail. Well, I, mean, I would say you are a connoisseur of detail. I mean, <laughs> well, I, I'm not kidding. It's like the amount of little tiny things that, as you said, first time through, you don't notice them. Right. But they're there and you love, you, you can feel them, you can appreciate them. Second time through, you're going to notice them. Right. And that's just detailed. Yeah. Yeah. 
sound effects. They're story hooks. Right. You know, and and a story hook is just that. It's something that you get that you don't know you're being given, and then it pays off later. Yeah, and don't and over... Your mind just goes off. And don't overcook them, because since yeah. so many movies, there's these little, these detail work, uh, little Chinese sound effects events, and they director wants to make sure everybody heard it. Sure. They overplay it. Yeah. And so in the mix, you've got to be smart. And, well, know. that also just means that Quentin trusts his audience too. He's going he's gonna to put this out there, but he's not going to hit you over the head with it because he trusts you to you know, track him and, yeah. and be ready for it when it comes back. Well, and exactly what Mike just said is that we, we practice this all the time with Chris and with Mike. You know, Our job isn't to uh, create a, a film that's about our work. Right. It's really these these hooks, these uh, these motifs and things that we do that we build in terms of sound, are really in service of a much bigger picture. And it, it's best to be subtle. It's best to let people lean in and get these things, as Mike said, rather than beat them over the head with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, you three are nominated uh, in 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 the sound editing and sound mixing categories, but you didn't do this movie by yourself. You you guys, you've you've alluded to some of the members of your team. Any, anybody else that you want to acknowledge? Uh, you guys must have had a great Foley team. On yeah. This. We had a great Foley team, but I'd acknowledge my wife, Lisa, who, <laughs> you know, who doesn't get as many nods as she should for what she does for the team. Because right. we, we um, a lot of the build was uh, done at my house. I have a, a Atmos studio at home mm -hmm. and, and a couple of cutting rooms that are all networked together. Right. Um, so it takes, a, it takes a bit of a village, you know. Um, we have a very small crew. I think, uh, uh, by traditional senses, you know, the dialogue was all cut by Mike Hurtline. You know, Lindsay pitched in on a reel, but twelve, you know, eleven of the twelve reels went through Mike Hurtline. That's a and, long movie, two hours and forty minutes, right? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah this is this is a, a substantial work, and we we finished the four hour version. So wow. the version you yeah, used, we usually do like the fifteen reel version. We start with that, and then he, then one day, uh, you know, it's a nine reel. Yeah. Yes. And they'll just do that overnight. And it's all based on the reactions. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, a woman named Paula Megrins, um, she handled a lot of the conforms. She's uh, one of those unsung heroes. Right. Paula was the uh, really an editor, but uh, had responsibilities that a typical first assistant sound editor might um, mm -hmm. might take on. But there's quite a bit of conforming that needs to be done when you have a four-hour film that's going to be presented in two and a half hours first. Right. Yeah. So, but... Uh, yeah, and because you, you have to mix that four-hour version, otherwise you're going to run out of time. You can't wait for it to get shortened. Right, yeah. right. So we have to attack it in a broad sense, but still pretty thorough. Uh, and when it gets down like to the re real time, then you get a little bit more details, or a lot more details. Yeah, I say, and but a that lot also more means ideas. when that four-hour version eventually surfaces, it's going to sound pretty good because yeah. you yeah. guys had uh, you guys had already worked on it pretty thoroughly. Yeah. Tell me about Quentin. Can I give one more shout Please out? Please do. Please do. Because uh, Jim Schultz really deserves a shout out. He's the music editor. He, um, you know, the, the, the role of a music editor traditionally is to work with a composer. Right. We don't have a composer. So right. his role is to work with the editor in chief, which is 
Fred Raskin right. and Quentin. Mm -hmm. And so that's a tremendous responsibility. And I think uh, I, I could. And he's responsible, obviously, for Jim, figuring out how to make all these uh, source cues work in the film and placement. And yeah. Yeah. And, and, and to, to set the first tone of like, okay, this is going to start a source and it's going to go to score. And it's, uh, you know, he and Mike work very closely together to, to render these ideas as, as mixes that then aren't proxies, but they're the avid and Quentin becomes comfortable and familiar and Fred as well. And this is the movie we're making. So right. I think uh, he's an important part of our, our, of our, yeah, we of had, our creative process. We ended up with four or five versions of every cue. Um, like I said, uh, because of clarity, cleanliness, um, size and scope uh, it, for any, for this moment versus this moment, what would you, so, and we had to run all of that by Fred and Quentin. Mm -hmm. So Jim was always, I'd go to his house, we'd listen to some stuff. Jim would send it to the cutting room and Fred and QT would listen to it and it was like, yeah, yeah, I like that one better. Let's let's go with number two. Right. Or in some cases, we didn't ever have time to do that, so we just did it ourselves. So we would on the stage go through the ones and go, right. here's, the, here's what we think you, you, we should be using. Right. And there was only once when QT said, I like that other one. Oh, really? So. We were pretty successful. Tell me about Quentin on the mixing stage. Is he, because we've all worked with, you know, you, on the one hand, you've got some directors that you can't really do anything unless they're on the mixing stage. And then you've got other directors who want to show up every fourth or fifth day and just hear a couple of reels for playback and they'll take notes and they're not really on the stage. Where where does Quentin fall on that kind of? We get him for the, like two weeks at the end. Okay. And he's there every day d diligently and he, he loves it. He loves hanging out and, and, Somebody asked me this question recently, and the, the, uh, my answer was, I love having him there because he's he loves what he does so much, and he appreciates what, uh, what's on the screen so much, and everybody's doing what they're doing so much, and he's he pretty much is laughing all day. <laughs> he's having a good time. He's, he's having a good time, and enjoys he's the enjoying process. everybody and everything, and he's telling stories, and he's doing all this stuff, right? And I, so I know if he's still laughing, we're doing good. Right. And when I see his tone change, <laughs> I know something's wrong. And so I got to go, I got to figure that out. I don't want him to have to like get too much anxiety over it. Like I'll figure it out and I go, yeah, let's, let's, uh, you know. Um, do, so a little work, do, do a little work on this thing, right? Yeah. yeah. And he encourages he encourages us to add things to do to try things, and oh, yeah. you know it works it's successful especially when he starts laughing hysterically. You right. don't ever have to ask him, and especially what I've learned with him is, you don't have to ask him if he ever liked something, even if he doesn't have any sort of reaction to it. If he would have done something, he's he to me he's the kind of director that, um, he 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 knows his film well enough that you don't need reassurance. He knows that you just did something, he knows and you he'll did immediately it. go, <laughs> and then we know, hey, that, you like that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just goes on all day. Quentin, you know, Quentin is a force of nature, and uh, we don't force him to make decisions without having a chance to digest things as well. So a lot of the decisions are things that we incrementally bring to his attention, and. Um, I think most post-production sound um, decisions sort of revolve around what's best for the director and, and to at what capacity does he want to make, um, you know, large decisions, you know, and, and small decisions. So 
um, it's an interesting approval process. Mm -hmm. And we focus really heavily on that during the, the whole cutting phase of the film. Well, I was about to say, you, you, you have a, a great advantage because you, you, he's not showing up on the final mix stage and hearing stuff that he's never heard before. Right. right. And we, we don't, we, we've, Mike and I and, and Chris, we've learned that it's not a good idea to, you know, this isn't a surprise party. This is the, this is the final mix and they're signing off on, on a, maybe years of their, of their creative intention. Right. And so it's really best to be very conscious of that and to be very supportive of that and to, um, to make it meaningful for them. So, you know, sometimes there's a thousand decisions that need to be made, but only 10 or 15 or 20 are a high material to the, to the film. And so we kind of break it up and, and, uh, and we're very conscious of the decision process and making it a comfortable thing for Quentin. Right. But always with the thought of what would Quentin like and what yeah. would Quentin do? Well, that's so experience. We will, there'll be a few surprises and we will be confident with those surprises. Sure. It, uh, and if he's having a good time, he'll be playful on the stage and he'll come up with an idea and things will change and you got to roll with it. Yeah. And sometimes you go, nah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Well, that, that is all the questions that I have. Were there any, any final thoughts that you guys wanted to offer on the, the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood experience? I th would say that Once Upon a Time, our intention with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was to make a time capsule movie. It's like reinventing something that could have happened in 1969 that should have happened in 1969. Mm -hmm. The heart of this film is a very wishful idea of what could have could happened. Have happened. Mm -hmm. And so it's in, it's in that that it's a, not only a tribute uh, to that period and to filmmakers of that period, but it's a tribute to uh, a sense of optimism and a sense of what if. I think it's partly why it's so appealing to people. It's, it's, a, it's a love story with, a, with an ending that would have been much more happy for all of us. I can't think of a better way to end the conversation than that. That's, that's a, that, was, that was a lovely sentiment and very well, very well put, Wiley. Uh, and let's go out and get a can of dog food. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Two and cans of dog and food. And smack someone yeah. in the face with it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, can I say one more thing? Of course. I would, it might, kind of related, but I would, my first film that I mixed, obviously it was with him, but it was also with Wiley. Is that my true? My first big film. Yeah. And it, uh, and Wiley has always, you've always been a very big supporter of mine. And, and I, this might be your last film. I, mean, I don't know. You've been threatening to retire, but I don't know if I believe it. I'm not retiring. I'm working harder than I've ever You've worked. transitioned in into and a different phase. In fact, I would say I'm doing the best work of my career at this point. So why, why is, retire? I just wanted to publicly say thank you for everything oh, that listen, you've done. An absolute pleasure. I'm working with both of you. I mean, and Mike, you know, there's a time in my life when I worked with three of the Minkler family. And uh, you, guys have got, you guys have got quite a dynasty. This started yeah. off with your with your grandfather, right? Well, my grandfather. Your grandfather. Wow. Started in 1929. And then my father, my two uncles, now Chris, fourth generation. Fourth generation so sound we, man? On, in uh, 37 years ago, me and my two uncles were all nominated at the same picture for Tron. Yeah. For Tron. And I worked sound on Tron as a sound designer. Back when I you, was guys, a you guys were, you guys, you guys were just, you guys were just kids back then. Oh, we, we were still kids, you know? Yeah, we're still kids. Six, yeah, six, you know. Sixteen-year-old boys in six-year-old sure. suits. Sure, of course, of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for doing the show. It's been a pleasure talking yeah. to you, and congratulations on your nominations, Wiley, Christian, Mike. It was really fun talking to you today. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you. I mean, there's a, there is a fifth generation coming. <laughs> it's 
his daughter Emma, who's 20, she did work on Once oh. Upon a Time. She yeah. was in the makeup, in what, de- makeup department. Really? She out a little bit. So she's not going to become a sound person? Uh, if I have anything to say about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. That is awesome. Yeah, no. Yeah, but she's finding her way. I mean, who knows? This is Glenn Kaiser uh, from the Dolby Institute. Thanks for listening in.